Our study this morning is just focused on one verse in John chapter 6. So let's take our Bibles and turn there. And I pray the Holy Spirit will help us this morning. This is a a challenging passage. There's a very um, simple spiritual principle here that Jesus teaches us. And it's so simple that it's one of those that when we look at it, we probably go, well, of course, that makes sense. That That's a logical truth. But the more time we spend at it and the more we kind of dig down into it, uh, the realize, we realize how much deeper it is and how much more challenging it is than we, than we might imagine. Constant battle going on. There's a constant fight going on for our heart and mind. And there's a constant battle going on for whether we really are going to live for the Lord, whether we really are going to be people who are called disciples, people who are called Christians, people that the Lord looks at and says, well done, you're doing a great job. You are serving me the way I've called you and the way that honors what I've done for you. That's a, it's an endless battle until we get to heaven. Be nice to get to heaven, won't it? Not have that battle anymore. Nice to just reside in the presence of the Lord and not be facing all the spiritual conflict that we face. But there is this battle going on for our heart and mind. And this principle this morning is really key to us, not only for our salvation, but also for our lives. Whether we are really living in a way that that verifies what we say that we believe. And this principle is important for every Christian. It's important for this church. It's important for the churches at whole. Because we, we really should be doing a continual assessment of, am I making an impact for the kingdom of God? Am I, am I having an influence in my culture? Am I having an influence in the lives of other people? And as we look at the last 30 or 40 years, and we've talked about this many times, I don't want to belabor the point, but we would have to conclude, I think, that Christianity's influence is marginal. That for all the growth of megachurches and all the media and everything else that's going on, that, that Christianity's influence is not stronger than it's ever been, it's weaker than it's ever been. And that's really not because of cultural resistance. It's not because there's no prayer in public schools and because there's there's a push of the government against churches or whatever. Those are there, but that's not really the issue. The real issue is that we've done the damage to ourselves. The real issue is that the church has allowed the culture to infiltrate it rather than it infiltrating the culture. And it really narrows down to three basic things that have happened that that we have allowed, whether it be personally or corporately uh, as Christians, especially in this country. The first thing uh, that I believe that that is true of of Christianity is there's been an internal lack of doctrinal conviction. We're weaker on doctrine than we've ever been. We're weaker on what we really believe, the core beliefs of our faith. Uh, we're weaker on the Word of God. The Word of God has been de-emphasized. There's been a shift from, from the Word and standing on the Word and studying the Word and breaking apart the Word now to kind of this practical application and addressing people's needs and, and just kind of being there. And, and what doctrine Christians do know, and I'm not 
trying, please understand my heart this morning. I'm not trying to be critical or depressing this morning. Just trying to analyze this. What doctrine we do know, we tend to treat fairly subjectively because we don't want our rights to be impinged. And we want freedom and we want to have some latitude in what we're allowed to do. So, so doctrinally, we're weaker than we've ever been. There's been also, second, a lack of gospel evangelism. There's been a shift toward relational evangelism, which is a wonderful thing, where you get to know somebody and you start to have conversations and you start to, to lead them toward the gospel and, and, and you kind of share as the comfort level is built up. Certainly that's a wonderful thing. The days of door-to-door evangelism are, are kind of gone. But the problem is, in the shift to more relational evangelism, we have kind of buried the lead. We've kind of stopped talking about the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death because it's not very PC. And because we're already labeled as intolerant and judgmental and closed-minded. So for us to say every single person that is alive is condemned by sin. Every single person that is alive is going to hell apart from Christ. Because that's kind of like... Yikes, what will people think? What If we say that, wow, everything that people think about Christians being harsh and judgmental is going to be backed up. And yet, that's the Word of God. The Word of God says, all of sin, all our kids know this, they learn in Awana, all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Wages of sin is death. But then there's the second part of Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everybody say, Amen. We've got to tell the truth. And we've marginalized and hidden the truth in many ways because we're scared. And then we're kind of under this constant warning that you better not really say what you believe because people won't accept it. Listen, if it's worked for 2,000 years, it's going to work until Christ comes back. If the gospel has worked for 2,000 years, it will work today. And we can't be hesitant on that. So there's been a lack of of doctrinal conviction. There's been a lack of gospel evangelism. And the third thing is there's been a lack of biblical sanctification. Because with the de-emphasis on the word of God and the softening of the gospel, guess what's going to happen? Christians then are going to become less mature and less set apart from the world. And that's the trend that we have seen. And as I talk to pastors, they're discouraged by it. Because we're no longer seeing the, the strong conviction and the strong set-apartness. In fact, actions that used to be unheard of for a Christian to do. And I mean, it goes so far that when my grandparents, uh, when, I, when I was going to my grandparents' house as a kid, they wouldn't even read the Sunday paper. I mean, that's, you know, can you imagine how unthinkable that is now? Don't read the Sunday paper. i got it right here on my internet, right here as I'm, as I'm sitting there. I've got it right here. I can read the news. But there was a sense of propriety. Now anything goes. In fact, churches now promote things that were unheard of for a Christian to do in the guise of, well, this will help us reach our culture. We would never say, we're going to have a service where we just speak the gospel. Because they go, nobody's coming to that. There's so little trust in the Holy Spirit to draw people to Christ. And to convict them when we fulfill the calling God give us. That now Christianity has become worldly and clever at the same time. And that's a bad combination. So, where does that put us? When Jesus was on the earth, he faced the same thing 
as he ministered to people. It just looked a little bit different. And that shows up in this passage. And this is a very, very, very deep passage of Scripture. We're only going to develop it a little bit this morning because we would get very confused if we didn't take weeks to really understand it. But this is one of the most difficult passages in the book of John. When Jesus was here, people were drawn to him. But many were drawn to him for the wrong reasons. And if you go back to the start of chapter 6, you see that there's evidence of why people might have been drawn to him. In verse 2, they were interested in him because of the miracles he did. People heard he was changing people's lives and healing the sick and and raising people from the dead. They're like, we're going to go see that. That's, that's Maybe he's got something for me. And then in verse 10, we see that he fed them a meal and he, he met all their needs. So they were very excited about that. And they're saying, well, this is, this is good. This is great for us. And then we see then in verse 14, some came to see him because they thought he was a prophet and, and that, wow, this, maybe this is somebody that we need to listen. Maybe this is the new version of Elijah. It's been a long time since we've heard from the Lord. 400 years of silence leading up to Jesus. So the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those, those guys were gone. And then there was four centuries of nothing. And now all of a sudden, this man from Nazareth is walking around. And he's teaching and he's healing people. And people say, we got to go see that. And then you get to verse 15. And some wanted to make him king. So people had motives for going to see Jesus. But, but Jesus challenges that here in our verse of this morning in chapter 6, verse 63, where he says that being a disciple is not about what we get out of it. Being a disciple is not about how we satisfy and indulge ourselves. Being a disciple is about what we give in terms of surrendering ourselves completely to the Holy Spirit. And based on what Jesus says here, that is the only option that we have as believers. In fact, anything short of full surrender will keep us in self-sufficiency and confusion and weakness and a lack of a vibrant life that only comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read what he says. How do we know what I just said is true? Don't take my word for it. Let's see what the word of God says. Just one line in verse 63. He says, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. English Standard Version, I like a little bit better how it puts it. It says, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. Let's say that again. It is the spirit who gives life And the flesh is no help at all. Now, just let those words settle in for a minute. Just just let that pour into your heart. This book, the book of John, is about believing. 92 times in this book, the word believe is used in, in 21 chapters. John is emphasizing in the words of Jesus that it is about Believing. Whenever you have a new believer, somebody receives Christ, you always say, give them the, you always give them the book of John. Start reading the book of John. Because it is about belief in Christ. And that message was so important in Jesus' ministry because he had come to save us. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you believe in your heart and confess your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. 
It is about belief. It is about trust in Christ, that he took our place, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, that he defeated sin and death forever, and that when we trust in him as Savior, we are saved. But many of the Jews didn't like that. And they didn't want to hear his teaching, and they didn't want to trust in him. It wasn't that they didn't hear the truth. It wasn't that they didn't see what Jesus was doing. It wasn't that they didn't witness the miracles and verify who he was. It wasn't that they didn't know about God. It wasn't that they hadn't experienced his mercy. The reason the Jews were hard-hearted toward Jesus is because they did not want to give in to him. They did not want to yield. It wasn't a lack of understanding. It rarely is. In fact, it never is. It's never a lack of understanding that Christ died for our sins. It is a resistance and a lack of belief and a lack of surrender. And in many ways, New Testament Judaism is very similar and parallel to postmodern Christianity. There's no generation that has more information than ours. There's no generation that that has more details, more information about God. There, there, there's more churches now that will appeal to any demographic, whether you are a, a, a trucker that listens to country music or whether you're in, in, a, in a motorcycle gang or whatever the case may be. There's a church for everything. I tried to do research this week to find out all the different kinds of churches that there were. I didn't have a lot of success. There's a church for anybody. There's a rodeo church. I mean, you can find a church. If you want to go to church, you can find a church. And Jesus Christ is still the focal point of history. There's no name that polarizes and gets more opinions in all of history than Jesus Christ. You walk down the street, you say to somebody, what do you think of Buddha? They're like, I don't know. See that big guy? But you say, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Watch the person's eyes. Everybody's got an opinion. And yet it doesn't seem like we're making a huge difference as followers of Christ. And part of that is, I think there's been a conclusion that being a disciple is too demanding. It's easier to accept Jesus as loving and tolerant than it is the one who called to us to repent of our sins. And Jesus even says that. Look back at verse 61 for a minute. I'll give you the context in a moment. He says to them, why are you offended? Why are you bothered by what I'm teaching you? And then verse 64 tells us why. It was because they really didn't believe. He's saying, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. I'm the bread of life. Very confusing passage. He says, you have to basically eat me. I'm the bread. I'm the cup that's being offered. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, don't get confused now with communion. He says, unless you partake of me, you can't have eternal life. And many people were offended by that. They didn't understand it. They're like, what are you talking about? But he was speaking spiritually. He wasn't speaking literally. He wasn't saying, you have to bite my arm. He was saying, you have to accept me. You have to receive me as the source of life And they didn't want to do that because mankind always looks for different options. Mankind is always trying to find a substitute for the longing in their heart. But the the only answer is Jesus Christ. That's why he says, you need to eat my bread. In other words, you need to receive me into your heart. Many people are offended by that. And many people today 
are offended by that. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And everybody goes, oh, there it is. There it is, you Christians. You're saying you got the only way, right? You, you have the only lock on the truth. Look at you. You're so smug. You're so arrogant. How dare you say that you and your Bible are the only answer? That, that if we, there is a God and, and we're going to get to heaven somehow, that the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. And Christianity, have you ever noticed this? Always is the one that gets hit for that. Do you know that Islam says the only way to get to God is through Allah? Do you know that Islam says if you don't worship Allah, you're an infidel, you need to be put to death? Do you know that that the Jews celebrate Passover? They say you can't get to heaven unless you celebrate Passover. That's a commemoration of what God has done, and it is absolutely necessary to find favor with God. Do you know that our culture says there's only one way to God? You know what the only one way to God is that our culture says? Every way. Every way is the way of God. That's the only way you can get to God is by any means. So every religion, even religion that says there's really no religion, says there is only one way. And yet why is it that biblical Christianity is always the one that gets called down? Why is it by holding on to Jesus that we're treated as intolerant? It's because people are offended by Jesus. These people understood, look back at the text for a moment, they understood what was going on. They just didn't want to trust him. They wanted to trust in themselves. Why don't people like Jesus? Why, why don't they want to follow Jesus? Well, ultimately, it comes down to what he calls us to. Jesus says we're accountable for our sin. Jesus says that we believe in him, and that's the only way to salvation. Jesus says that we have to deny ourselves and turn away from all sin. Jesus says to take up our cross. He says to bear another, uh, one another's burdens and forgive as he is forgiven, and that if we don't forgive as he is forgiven, he won't forgive us. The reason for the rejection of Jesus Christ is that there's still a love for self. And he looked back at verse 63, the verse we read. Self is personified in that word flesh. The word means our earthly nature that is prone to sin and opposed to God. Our earthly nature, our human nature, that is prone to sin and opposed to God. Now, that's the spiritual distinction that Jesus is putting before the crowd here. He's calling them and calling us to, to question our motives because following him, serving him, trusting in him, being his disciple requires a drastic change in how we live. And to help us kind of understand the implications of that, we have to come back again to the verse. Look at it. It's the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. The first thing we have to ask as we read that verse is, do I even have the Spirit? Is my life indwelt by the Spirit of God? The only way we can be indwelt by the Spirit of God is by salvation through Jesus Christ. So I have to ask the question, and I think it's a logical question, have you personally invited Jesus Christ, have you personally trusted him to forgive you and cleanse you of all of your sin and purchase your life 
for all eternity. Because there's no point in talking about being filled with the Spirit if we don't know what having the Spirit means. And I would never presume and never do presume that in a room like this, every single person is walking closely with the Spirit of God. So we have to ask the question, have you renounced your sin? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the substitute for your sin? Do you believe that he took your place, that he defeated death forever by rising again? That's the gospel. Any single person in this room can receive that right now. Most, I hope all of you have. I hope I'm wasting my breath because we all know and love Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to assume that. And ultimately, we all come down to the decision. Am I going to trust Christ with my life or I'm going to reject him? Because Jesus says in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You can have all the wealth, all the popularity, all the happiness in your life. But if your soul is not given to Jesus Christ... You have nothing. So we have to ask the question, do you know Christ? You can receive his salvation this morning, right now, today, where you are sitting. And if you don't know how to do that, what that means, I'll be glad to talk to you after the service. Because don't leave this place today. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't leave this church today without doing that. Now, why do we have to make that distinction? We have to make that distinction because everyone who is saved has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. How do we know that? We know that because Romans 8, 9 says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So if we trust in Christ as our Savior, then we have His Spirit. And 1 John five twelve says, whoever has the Son has life. Well, if you look back at our verse in the morning, it says it's the Spirit who gives life. So the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit are the same thing. Don't separate them in some kind of weird concoction. They are one God. So salvation puts us under the indwelling ownership of the Spirit. But listen now, even as believers who have received the Spirit and are indwelt by Him, even as believers, we can resist Him. There are two kinds of resistance. There's passive resistance. Passive resistance is is incomplete trust. It's spiritual indifference. It's laziness in our walk. It's, It's allowing sin to have a place without really fighting it off. We're just kind of doing our thing and and we're coming to church and we're kind of reading our Bibles and praying and and kind of doing the Christianity thing, but we're not really walking with him. That's passive resistance. And then there's active resistance. Active resistance is intentionally pursuing sin. Active resistance is, is openly and happily embracing worldliness, not separating ourselves from the world, but but claiming freedom to do what we want. Now, neither of these will be present if we're truly full of life because we're full of the Spirit. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Every day, we should be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because every day, the Holy Spirit is willing to fill us to overflowing. Every day, the Holy Spirit is ready to invade and overwhelm and engulf our life with his presence so we can walk in holiness and so we can resist sin and so we can be powerful in prayer and in worship and study and in our witness. Every day, he's willing to do that. That's why we overuse the verse. He says, deny yourself daily because by denying ourselves daily, we're emptying ourselves so he can fill us. 
But if we don't want to deny ourselves, guess what? He's not going to fill a space that's already clogged with something else. Now, what would it look like? How do we evaluate this? I was trying to think about this this week. How do we evaluate whether we're under complete control of the Holy Spirit? How do we know when that takes place? It's easy to think we're close, and we probably are. But but let's really define it and test ourselves. And I don't know if you want to write these down or just think through them. But but let me give you uh, nine nine qualifications here. I'll go through them one line at a time. If we were really full of the Spirit, number one, sin would be repulsive and unthinkable. Not something that we allow and enjoy. If we were really full of the Spirit, sin would be absolutely disgustingly repulsive to us. If we were full of the Spirit, we would want to constantly be in the presence of the Lord rather than pursuing other options and having other priorities. If we were really full of the Spirit, we would hunger for prayer and for the Word, not shy away from them. If we were really full of the Spirit, His fruit, I'm going to get it right this time. I wrote it down to make sure. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I get them all? No. Faithful. I just forget it. I'm never going to know them. If we were really full of the Spirit, His fruit would be abundant in our lives. Those words, including the one I missed, would unquestionably characterize our everyday life. If we were really full of the Spirit, worry and fear would have no place in our life. Prayer would take its place. If we were really full of the Spirit, we would crave nothing that the world craves. We would not participate in what would be identified as worldly. If we were full of the Spirit, our church would have a life and a passion to it that is unparalleled. We would be desperate for every single person in this city to come to know Jesus Christ. And if we were really full of the Spirit, this is the last one, our plans and our control would be submitted to the Lord and we would not proceed without His clear leading. Now, analyze that, especially if you wrote them down, and say to yourself, am I going through the motions, kind of trying to convince myself that the Spirit who gives me life is my Lord, or am I really surrendering myself to him, and am I full of the Holy Spirit? Are, are, we, are we saying we want the Spirit in our lives and that we're seeking his leading and then doing what we think is right? Listen, there is no lip service with the Lord. He knows every thought and intent of our heart. He knows exactly what pride looks like. He knows when our heart's divided. He knows when we're playing a role more than we're giving ourselves to him. We will never fool the Spirit of God. But the enemy loves to deceive us. And we can buy into his lies to satisfy our conscience. So let's finish our study just by looking at two key phrases. Let's just go back and divide it one more time, okay? The two key phrases in the verse are, the Spirit gives life and the flesh is no help. The Spirit gives life and the flesh is no help. So let's start with the first one. The Spirit gives life. How would we define life in the spiritual sense? I think I have a bad analogy, if you will tolerate it. 
I was trying to think this week about how do we define life? And I thought Jesus used everyday objects as metaphors. So let's something uh, use something that we just know and love so much here in Wisconsin in March. Let's use the weather. Today's happy, right? Sun's out. They're telling us it's going to be mid-50s, which if you're in the south, you're wearing a parka. Here, we're in bathing suits. It's nice. I was getting ready this morning. The birds were singing. They're happy that it's finally warm. And we may sense that spring's finally starting to be here and we're getting excited and baseball starts tomorrow and everything. Of course, it's going to be 39 on Wednesday. Not to depress you. Is that what our walk looks like? This this nonsense of spring, back and forth, taunting, kind of nice one day, worse the other. Are we back and forth like that? Or... or, or is is there just no steadiness? Or maybe it's worse than that. Maybe maybe instead of life, right now our spiritual walk is like that long, nasty winter that we just went through where we're kind of just dark and, and hopeless and, and it just doesn't seem like there's much going on. Or or it maybe maybe it's like the grass in my backyard right now, which is brown and soggy. And there's little pockets of snow still where the sun doesn't reach during the day. And you kind of walk out and you think, there's no way in the world that in two months this grass is going to be green and needing to be mowed. Because right now it's just slushy. Is, is that our walk this morning? Or are we just kind of, there's evidence of some past life, but there's not much there now? Or or, or you're saying, well, it's, it's warm today, I'm doing good, but but I don't feel very confident. And, and, and it's going to snow again this week, and I'm just kind of... Back and forth. I mean, is this is this how we're living? We have the Spirit of God in our lives. We have the Holy Spirit of God who has all power and authority over everything. He indwells us. Is that how we're living? Soggy, slushy, back and forth. Is that what Christ died for? The evidence is there, if that's true, that the flesh is still in control and the Spirit isn't. Or, here's the alternative, is there life and joy? Are you growing and active and vibrant every day, progressing toward maturity in Christ, excited about the Lord? Look at what the Lord's doing in my life. Yeah, I've got difficulty right now, and I don't know what's happening, but but you know what? God is good, and he's faithful. Or, or does it go beyond that? Are you mature and strong and fully submitted? Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness like you never have before? Isn't it interesting that maturity isn't stagnation? Maturity brings a greater desire for the Lord. Remember when you first got saved? Oh, I want to know about the Lord. I want to study His Bible. I want to, I want to get in church. I want to be with believers. I want to go to Bible study. We were all excited. And then kind of the middle age of our Christianity hit. We're just kind of like, my joints hurt. Maturity in the Lord means a greater hunger for the Lord, a greater hunger for His Word, a greater hunger to be in His presence. The Spirit gives life. He doesn't give soggy. You get the point? It's a weak analogy, but you get the point, right? The Spirit doesn't give brown, muddy, soggy grass spiritually. He gives life. He gives everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So what's the alternative? We're done. Look at the alternative. The flesh. And what does it say about the flesh? It's no help. The flesh is what prevents life and joy and hunger from taking hold. The flesh hinders the work of the Spirit. But listen now. How often... 
How often do we put our confidence in the flesh? What's the flesh ever done for you and me? What has sin ever done for you and me? It makes empty promises that it can't fulfill. It corrupts our minds and it pollutes our hearts and it fools us into thinking that we know better than the Lord and it divides us and it makes us crave sin and it damages our relationships and it makes us weak and resistant to the Holy Spirit and it crowds out His presence in our lives. What good does the flesh do? And yet we still give it a place. The Spirit gives life. Why? When? When we give Him complete control. The flesh gives us nothing. Nada. Nil. Zero. The flesh gives us nothing. So we need to analyze everything in our lives. Our words, our actions, our attitude, our agendas, our lifestyle. We need to analyze everything and say, is this characteristic of the flesh and my pride or is it characteristic of the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is our only hope. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh offers nothing And if we're lacking that life this morning, there is no other option. There's no other place to look other than the Lord. He is gracious and he will change us. But this is not just about saying, oh God, I hope you'll help me. This is about complete and absolute surrender. It's about refusing to be content with weak conviction and inconsistent holiness. It is about saying, Lord, I want life, and life only comes from your spirit. And where the spirit is, there is power. And where the spirit is, there is confidence. And where the spirit is, there is hope. Because where the spirit is, there's life. Let's close our eyes. I don't know how the Lord's spoken to you this morning. I'm sure I haven't explained it well, and I hope the Holy Spirit has worked despite me. But I feel strongly that we need to take a moment. It's still early. We need to take a moment and analyze our lives right now. What is the flesh? What is, what is the flesh that needs to be now put off? We all know what it is in our own lives. Nobody else may know, but we know. Flesh that's been allowed to corrupt our maturity in Christ. Flesh that weakens our faith. Flesh that makes us hesitant and scared. Flesh that harms our witness. What is it between you and the Lord right now? The flesh profits nothing. It has no life to it. It's dead. But the Spirit gives life. Are you fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit this morning? 
Have you given yourself completely to him? Or is it just kind of, yeah, I'm trying. Doing my best. It's all or nothing. And the great truth is that when we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit, he gives life everything we need for us to be like Christ. Everything we need to be like Christ, the Holy Spirit will supply. So I'm going to challenge you right now as I've challenged myself and the Lord has challenged my heart. Right now, submit those things that are part of the flesh to the Lord. If you're really sincere about this, if you really desire for the Holy Spirit to have control of your life, then those things have to be submitted. They have to be surrendered. You have to, you have to put them off. Not hold on to them any longer. You have to put them off. And as we do that, as we confess those things to the Lord, He will cleanse us. He promises that. And He'll purify us and His Holy Spirit will fill our lives. Father, we thank you this morning for the promises that you give us. That in your Holy Spirit, who you so graciously and willingly give to us through no merit of our own. Simply because you're a loving and merciful God who has saved us and redeemed us. Lord, that your Holy Spirit is willing to indwell us and fill us so that we may walk in life. Lord, I pray this morning that conviction would be strong in our hearts, that the things that we allow that are flesh, that are dead, that are resistant to you, Lord, that they would no longer be part of our lives, but that we would walk in holiness and sanctification, set apart for you. Because, Lord, the world needs to hear about you and you have called us to be your witnesses and your ambassadors. Lord, this may, may this day be one of new birth in our soul. A new joy, a new refreshing in our hearts. That we would love you and give ourselves to you and that your Holy Spirit would fill us so powerfully. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that you're willing to do this work and you will do it and are doing it right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.